Unit Four, Listening B. Ask most people what the world's largest desert is, and the chances are they'll say the Sahara. The Sahara is certainly big, covering more than nine million square kilometers, but it isn't actually the world's biggest desert. That distinction goes, strangely enough, to Antarctica, because to scientists, a desert is an area with very little or no atmospheric water vapor, and that can, of course, include very cold places. The Sahara is, though, the world's biggest hot desert. Just to give you an idea of its size, it's bigger than the whole of Australia, which is just under eight million square kilometers in total, and almost as big as the continental United States. The region is not completely inhospitable, though. Today, about two and a half million people live in the Sahara region. The majority of these in Egypt, Morocco, and Algeria. Unit Four, Listening C. When we think of the Sahara, we tend to think of sand dunes, and some of them are extremely large, sometimes reaching 180 meters in height. It isn't all sand, though. The Nile Valley, with its lush vegetation, runs through the Sahara, and olive trees and other Mediterranean plants can be found in the northern highlands. By the way, if you ask people what they think Sahara means in Arabic, they often guess something like sand or heat. In fact, Sahara is actually the Arabic word for desert, so to call it the Sahara Desert is actually to call it the desert desert. Maybe that is quite apt, though, as parts of the Sahara, because of the sand and heat, are indeed extremely inhospitable. Unit four, listening E. The Sahara has changed considerably over the last fifteen thousand years or so. In the last ice age, which ended around ten thousand years ago, much of the Sahara was roughly as dry as it is now. In the more northern regions, though, there were massive ice sheets. The region was certainly inhospitable back then, and was bigger, extending further to the south than it does today. Once the ice age came to an end, the climate changed. The ice in the north melted, producing some wetlands, and then the region began to dry out. However, there were soon monsoon rains throughout the region, meaning that the Sahara at this point, and for several thousand years, in fact, was considerably wetter than it is these days. This lasted until about 3,400 BC, by which time the monsoon had retreated south again, and the process of desertification, where the desert spreads, began again in earnest. Climate-wise, not much has changed in the Sahara for the last 5,000 years. The driest parts receive less than two centimeters of rainfall a year. In the wettest regions, this increases to a maximum of 10 centimeters each year. One change that is being witnessed today: the desert is getting bigger, expanding to the south by as much as 50 kilometers every year. Unit four, speaking A. One. Oh yes, I definitely prefer city life to life in the country. Two. I've been a student in Australia for two years now, and I prefer sharing a flat with other people to living on my own. Three. 
I definitely prefer not to commit so far to work each day. Four. Well, I'd rather my little brother didn't make so much noise. Five. Yes, I'd rather my grandparents had lived a bit closer to us. Unit four, pronunciation. One, it took ages to climb to the top of the hill. Two, I doubt it'll snow tonight. Three, there aren't any good beaches round here, to my knowledge. Four, have you ever lived in a foreign country? Unit four, exam practice, listening. You'll hear a lecturer talking to students about the ozone layer and CFCs. First, you have some time to look at questions one to seven. Now listen carefully and answer questions one to seven. Today, it is well known that CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons, can do immense damage to the ozone layer, which protects the Earth from harmful radiation from the sun. However, it was as recently as the mid-1970s when the connection between CFCs and ozone layer destruction was first established. The story starts back in 1957, when James Lovelock invented the electron capture detector. This is a machine that can detect very small amounts of a chemical compound in the atmosphere. Indeed, using the machine, it was Lovelock who was the first person to detect the widespread presence of CFCs in the Earth's atmosphere. In 1973, Lovelock, on a research trip which he'd funded himself, measured the amount of CFCs in the atmosphere in the Arctic and in Antarctica, but unfortunately came to the wrong conclusion that CFCs are not harmful to the environment. Following on from this work, though, in 1974, Sherry Rowland and Mario Molina published the very first scientific paper on the connection between CFCs and ozone depletion. This quickly prompted the world's first ban on the use of CFCs which was enacted in 1975 by the U.S. state of Oregon. Further bans followed. In 1978, the United States and several European countries banned the use of CFCs in spray cans. CFCs were still allowed to be used, though, for refrigeration and in solvents. It was in the mid-1980s that scientists in Antarctica observed a huge depletion in the ozone layer above them often called the hole in the ozone layer. This led, in 1987, to the signing of the Montreal Protocol, which called for further reductions in the production and use of CFCs, and then, two years later, to a European Union agreement to ban the production of all CFCs by the end of the century. 
Before you hear the rest of the talk, you have some time to look at questions 8 to 10. Now listen and answer questions 8 to 10. So why exactly are CFCs so harmful? One of the reasons CFCs were so popular in the production of solvents and refrigeration coolants is that they are unreactive. That is, they don't react easily or at all with other chemical compounds. It's this property, however, that also makes them dangerous. Because they are unreactive, it's very difficult for them to be broken down. This gives them a long lifespan, more than 100 years in some cases, and allows them to rise into the upper levels of the atmosphere, the stratosphere, unchanged. There, ultraviolet radiation from the sun starts to break them down, freeing the chlorine atoms from the CFCs. It's this chlorine that helps destroy the ozone there. End of CD1